Hello again, it's David Oakes here. This next in-depth interview with the fantastic Eleanor Michelle was recorded only two weeks ago at the Natural History Museum, but I'm bringing it to you all earlier than I intended, as I think it provides an insightful and illuminating counterfoil to last week's episode. So without further ado, here's Dr. Eleanor Michelle, and this is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible Including those whose curiosity peaks at a dormouse's squeaks I'm going to get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, I've come to the epicentre of man's fascination with the natural world. I'm in South Kensington at the Natural History Museum. I'm here to meet resident scientist Dr. Eleanor Michelle, who is an evolutionary biologist with a focus on ecology and many other things, and I'm going to let you describe what they are because I'm going to get it all wrong, let alone the pronunciation of them. Great. (laughs) Okay, well, hello. Thank you so much. Um, I do lots of different things um, in the context of trying to understand uh, how the living world evolved and how it functions. Um, That's the evolution and ecology part of it. But in order to sort of structure that, one, like me and lots of my colleagues here at the Natural History Museum, do taxonomy. That's the sort of classification and organizing of biodiversity, the living world. And To give us a way to refer to that, um, we have a system of nomenclature or nomenclature. Um, That's the naming system. Nomenclature being the English pronunciation. Yes. I've just learned that one. I've been saying that American for years. Yeah. And uh, so that's the way we sort of structure our knowledge and then have the handles of of actually finding all the information. We use Mm -hmm. the names to, to... to recover the information, data, sure. etc. Um, and then I'm a research scientist with my own particular focus, and my, my interests have always been in linking processes in deep geologic time and in the recent. That's now. Uh-huh. Uh, and so dead so, and alive. Yeah, dead and alive. <laughs> and to, to do that, you need to have something that actually has a decent fossil record. So my interests have taken me to working on mollusks. We're sitting today in the, in the Molluska Library of the Natural History Museum. Buried is, deep in the bowels. We got lost in the way here, so it's amazing that we are actually at all in any yeah. Surrounded by, by wonderful um, hardwood bookcases. That's, that's and, an octopus, though. That's an like that's a, they're not a mollusk. It is. A, uh, that's octopus, uh, is a octopus is a mollusk. It doesn't have a shell. Uh, okay. So for paleontologists, you don't actually see octopuses, except extremely rarely, and the fossils aren't really much that you can work with. In contrast, um, the whole uh, group of gastropods has fabulous shells. And they they make up a huge part of the fossil record, and you can do all kinds of really good science with the fossils that show up. Okay, so I've I've we've I've got printed out here basically my GCSE homework from a biology course, which has domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Great. So for those that <laughs> like me, so mol- mollusk is the phylum. Yes. Great. 
Okay, yeah. So the other part of the introduction I wanted to say was that you are the chair of the Friends of the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs. I am. So we'll come on to that at the end. Yeah. But let's start with the Natural History Museum. Okay. We're here in the bowels, Mm -hmm. but you're a working scientist. Yes. A lot of people probably don't know that the museum houses a very active scientific community. Indeed. There are, um, depending on how you count it, somewhere between 300 and 500 active scientists here. There are about 1,000 people, 900 people who work here. So half are front of house and half are science. Sure. This is probably the premier institution in the world for studying biodiversity in a taxonomic context. So how many mollusk specialists are there here? And the, I'm sorry, are you here as a mollusk, mollusk specialist? Yes. That's a mouthful. Yes. And as um, in, well, in the, in the past I had a, a position actually running an organization on nomenclature. Sure, the that's names. the ICZN. Yeah, International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature, which was based here and is now based in Singapore. Is the first thing you need to do to be a member of that group is to learn how to say it without tripping over yourself. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And say it slowly. (laughs) And also to roll, I'm rolling my eyes, as everybody does, at an organization that has a name like International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature. And really, what its objective is, is to be efficient about names. Yeah. And it's got the longest name that you can ever imagine. But most official names for animals, or the Linnaean names for animals, are long and convoluted and interesting. Not as long as before uh, Linnaeus got to them. Okay. So Linnaeus got started on this business because... In He's around 1707, uh, 1707 to 1778, not exactly. right my homework. Oh, good. I'm glad you looked up the dates. Because <laughs> those usually slip my mind. But yeah, in, in the mid-18th century... There was um, there was sort of a burst of discovery of of the living world as people started to go from the centers of uh, it's the enlightenment it's, basically it's basically the enlightenment and enlightenment and exploration and they were bringing back loads of interesting things from far corners of the world to be studied by people who were in one place usually uni- European universities sure. and doing lots of comparisons with things in other around the world. And it, there was this realization that there was an awful lot of stuff out there, a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. And how do you name all that stuff? Because there were names for things that were in Europe that sure. people were familiar with, and suddenly things were coming in that looked different but kind of the same. And so they'd use the names that they had, but they'd add a few more adjectives on the front or the back, depending on the which language it was. And they brown had, colored Yes, and, and yeah. different sets of adjective strings if they were speaking in French or in English or in German or whatever, and the names got absolutely ridiculous. So Linnaeus was Swedish. He say. was Swedish. And so... And I mean, I don't think... Imagine if we had chosen to do it all in Swedish as opposed to Latin. We would have been even more... It would have been problems. an even bigger mess. So his, his absolute inspiration is to make names short, mm-hmm. um, basically. So essentially two parts, although there's lots of exceptions on these things, but sure. effectively a two-part name. And, and that's the genus and the species. Genus the and species. Yeah. And putting them in Latin so that everybody had a chance at learning the basics of Latin, which is, you know, it's 
it's learnable. We we did um, it at school, but our school was a bit old fashioned. I don't know if it gets taught anymore, especially with syllabus getting cut all over the place. Yeah, I remember um, learning the Latin names for all of my favourite animals. So Falco Tenunculus and Mellows Mellows were right up there in the early days. Oh, good. Didn't help me yeah. get a girlfriend though. Yeah, yeah no, of course not. <laughs> um, it depends on it depends on where you are for um, whether Latin is sure. is actually taught. It's still quite useful actually as a sort of a structured way of knowledge. So were you taught Latin when you? Grew I up? wasn't. Um, so you can probably tell from my accent, I'm originally American, but I'm, my way of speaking is a little bit messed up because I've been in Britain for a very long time. Sure. So it's sort of this um, strange, strange mixture of And in Holland as well, I guess? I lived, in, I lived in the Netherlands for about six years as well. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, uh, and I've lived in other countries, and so I'm well aware of the problems of trying to communicate when you don't know the local language. And having a language that can actually go across boundaries easily is very, very useful. And Latin was the language of, of academia sure. at the time. Well, well, let's use this as a point to yeah. go back and look at you. Where did you grow up? Um, so I grew up basically in the United States, the east coast of the United States, and like many Americans, moving around a bit. Sure. So I have I have roots in a number of other parts of the U.S. as well. Uh-huh. Um, I did my Ph.D. in I, well, I did undergraduate in Chicago, and then uh, Ph.D. in Arizona, and postdoc in Michigan, and then moved to Europe. When did so, the mollusks start? The mollusks started... Um, Every single word we've got to focus on today is particularly hard to say. Yes, <laughs> it is terrible. And I have a little lisp, so it's terrible <laughs> to work on mollusks. But um, it started... Uh, really, I, I can almost pinpoint it to almost the day... To the slug. To, to the slug. To the snail. No, it has to be with a shell. Okay. Because um, it really comes down to the actual snail shell. Okay. Um, so I, I took paleontology... Um, at the University of Chicago from uh, some rather well-known paleontologists who discovered that mass extinctions came in cycles uh-huh. and that the, the whole process of understanding how evolution unfolded through deep time over millions, tens of millions, or even hundreds of millions of years is an absolute mind-blowing idea. And I found that whole class, uh, that whole course of study that whole system of knowledge was just absolutely I just felt completely changed mm-hmm. by trying to get my head around it and even decades into being a, a professional I find that when I really get my head into this deep time thing I get kind of um, lost in a new a new world and way of thinking it's really amazing does it so I mean I have to boil that down does that make you feel safe to know that mass extinctions come all in one big sway? Does it make you feel scared that they're... It makes me feel outside of myself, and I think that, that in, in a very good way, and I think that's why um, one of the things that motivates scientists is that you... It has nothing to do with me uh-huh. anymore, is that you're looking at the outside world and you see this extraordinary system... And, interconnectivity and you are as well. Interconnectivity, and you're nothing in it. And your emotions and all of those things are... Um, they're not part of the story the whole thing is is ex- is baffingly huge and complicated it's huge and complicated but marvelous what today um, they've just released the first photograph of a black hole i know i saw it on my way in today I, literally was, a few, about an hour ago i think it yeah. came out and i was like that's incredible it's incredible if anything is going to make you feel small it's it's yeah a, a, substance, a, a, a black hole which is millions of times larger than our sun 
yes. hundreds of millions of like it's huge. Yeah. And it's just there, and it's really close. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit scared of it. And you can actually see it, yeah. 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 I mean, the more you look into the natural world, the more you see the integration and how sometimes it's the smallest thing that is the, the keystone, and sometimes it's the largest thing. It's, yes. I think it's how some people use it for a proof of God, and some people say it's far too complicated even for a supreme being to be able to create this kind of right. miasma. Yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. So, so this show. Um, so anyway, paleontology was was um, open doors to me in ways of thinking that I never thought were possible, mm-hmm. and and I really felt um, like my whole mind was expanded and changed by the process. Okay. So then the question comes in: How do we know these things about the fossil record? How do we know that there is this thing of deep time? Um, and there's this wonderful system of of d- geology. D- deep time, you would describe as just. A long time ago. A long, 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 long time ago. Millions and millions of years ago. And to to figure out what millions of years means is a real challenge. You have to sort of... That's that process of getting your head in it. You have to sort of start looking at geologic outcrops. The earliest fossil records of pre-that in terms of the geological strata? Well, all of it. Okay. So, uh, I mean, how do you you actually This is probably going to be the longest podcast we've ever done, (laughs) just to get the background. (laughs) I know. How many adjectives can I string in a row in order to convince you that it's a long time ago? Um, yeah, so how how do we actually understand these things? Well, you you do have to sort of get your head around some kind of a tool or, or a, a some object that will actually let you hook mm-hmm. into seeing what the process of change is. So that for you was this? Fossils. Okay. And then the question is what fossils would you have to actually to, to understand anything well enough to really get your brain flowing along into the system sure. you've got to know know the know it pretty well so you have to specialize and that's the thing about becoming a scientist is there's this little jump that um people people who are sort of casual consumers of science maybe don't realize they just sort of take a little bit here and there of the cool ideas and say mm-hmm. wow but actually to do it um professionally you need to become a an expert on bit. some little very narrow or what seems narrow to other people sure. A narrow focus. Okay. First of all, how does how does how do we know about deep time and change of the living world uh-huh. through deep time? And that is we chron- we chronicle how organisms change, and to do that, you look at the fossils. That's okay. the basically the hard parts. There's somehow some kind of a skeleton sure. that gets preserved through time, and you have to become really practiced at looking at what the little bumps and ridges and, and changes in so form So did you mean. spend a lot of time fossil collecting, looking for things, or did you use uh, resources and collections that already existed? Well, a little bit of both. So, so um, basically, I, uh, in order to figure out which group of animals I might want to focus on, I had, you know, it sort of narrows it down. You need something that actually fossilizes. And, um, and that's shells. That's... In in the the options are few, so you can you can work on little teeny weeny things, mm-hmm. micro fossils, and they're great for paleoclimate work. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of seeing what on, the meteorological events were at the time, the, the, yeah, the temperature, the whole temperature, sure. productivity, how okay. the oceans changed, all that kind of stuff. They're great. they're really and some of those are exquisitely beautiful, but it turned out I got kind of tired looking through microscopes. I did okay. a lot of microscope work. And I found that moment of sitting at the microscope 
was beautiful and wonderful, but I couldn't do more than a few hours at a time. And to do science, you've got to do like a lot. So I kind of wanted something a bit bigger. What about dinosaurs? Um, They're bigger, Mm -hmm. but the problem with them is there's just not enough fossils to do a lot of the science that you need to see how ecosystems change, how things change overall. And so a happy middle ground um, where you get lots of fossils and you get... They're big enough that you don't have to big enough you can you can actually handle them and they're they still exist in the world today so you can look at analogs you can see how things in the deep time might relate sure cross-reference and work out evolutionary cross-referencing so we're talking like we're going looking at ammonites and things like that in particular one could look at ammonites but um, ammonites don't do very well as far as modern analogs. Sure. So there course, are tons of ammonites, yeah. and, and they were exquisitely beautiful. But now we've just got Nautilus, basically. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the squidgy stuff like octopus and squid, but they don't have much of a fossil record either. Sure. So that leaves you with snails and clams, um, basically. <laughs> and I like snails, and I find clams okay, um, <laughs> but just not quite as Cool. I've kind of shifted now. I'm working with more clam people, and I, I, I'm more <laughs> clam positive than I used to be. But initially, it was... It was um, I really it came want you down to have a little s- pin badge that says, yeah. I'm uh, clam positive. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but um, I, they, I, kind, I just like the geometry of a, sure. a snail shell. And for me, some of it comes down to the aesthetic point. So really the, the practicalities of what you work on and then the aesthetics. Because you, you want to look forward to your day. You want to um, have that sort of delight on looking at, the, mm-hmm. at, at, at your yeah. research s- subject, at the animals that, you're, that you work on. And for me, the spiral form... And accretionary growth is just a wonderful thing. So it became quite clear to me that um, that's how I narrowed down and became a specialist on Um, snails, snails. which otherwise it's a little hard to explain. Do you remember... I mean, I I still find snails a bit icky. Yeah. Um, I remember our biology lab at school had these huge African snails that you could stick on the wall, which people did. Um, Do you remember thinking of snails and slugs and things as a kid? Do you... Yeah, um, I actually have a... Uh, I, I, I agree with you that the, that, that the sticky part is, can be really quite icky. Uh-huh. And I have a little bit of a slug phobia, if you can believe it. You're uh, a mollusk specialist with a And I have slug a slug phobia. phobia. And when <laughs> we go home on a rainy night in London, it's my other half who picks up the slugs and saves them off the sidewalk. And I just don't particularly want to interact with my hands. I can look at them from a uh-huh. distance, but I'm, I'm not the one who wants to pick them up. That's um, kind of brilliant. Yeah, uh, kind of, and it's kind of embarrassing too. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, do you, do you remember playing with them as kids, though? I mean, I remember, I remember my sister, she's terrified of them. Yeah. You could pick up the little snails and sort of wobble them near her face and it would wind her up like that. Some people else. are terrified of them. I am not terrified of snails in a shell. I find them absolutely fine, but it's the shell part that for me works. Okay. Um, in my work, I've done lots and lots of stuff on the squishy parts now, um, doing a lot of anatomy. I've done a lot of dissections of, of the insides, uh, a lot of genetics as well. So you end up processing the, the tissue part and... Um, the, the fear goes away absolutely instantly. I don't. I'm not. I have. 
no problem in dealing with that. And I should say um, another advantage of working on something like snails is that in the process of doing biology, there is inevitable death of the specimens. Uh Um, If you're going to do things like genetics and anatomy, um, you have to collect specimens and actually work on them. Do you feel bad about that? um, I do feel bad about it, um, and I, I, I feel quite obliged to get useful science out of anything that I collect uh-huh. for that reason. But I also feel that um, that I, I've, by working on animals that reproduce quickly and in large numbers um, and that have a very limited neurological response, that it makes it a little bit better. better. Um, it still is a rather painful process. Now, I... How do you it's, kill a snail um, if you're dissecting it? Uh, thoughtfully, carefully, <laughs> and trying to you you try to make it so it's not so bad for them quickly, okay. basically. It is, um, it's, I, I mean, yeah. I, I'm not. I, I don't have an agenda here. I, I don't care yeah. if you kill a million snails, or I do care, or one or the other. That's no agenda. Yeah. I ni- neither care. Well, I do. Care. I actually, I care profoundly. I really do care profoundly, and I wish we didn't have to sure. mess with the natural world at all, actually, to understand uh, it. At what point... I mean, there are obviously sort of scientific avenues that are providing lots of information about the past, about the present, and about the future. At what yeah. point do you think we should stop? At what point do you think we should stop? But when have enough snails died? Right. I mean, what are, you, what are people discovering now about the mollusk world that is helping us in this world? I'm not trying to put you out of a job. I'm really not. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a sort of genuine question. Is, is there going to be a point where we know enough? What is enough? Enough enough is defined by the human appetite for knowledge uh-huh. and also our, our need to know what the rest of the living world besides humans is. Uh-huh. And um, within that is the whole, uh, the, the whole problem of conservation, which wasn't a problem particularly at Linnaeus's time, yeah. but now is incredibly pressing. So I would say, getting back to this rather harsh topic of, of, of um, collections of specimens, um, wh- why does it still need to be done, for example, in m- my focal area and my specialism is in African freshwaters. Uh-huh. And, and the rift lakes. In rift area, lakes yeah. of Africa, That's yeah. That's down the east coast, the whole series of lakes that interconnect. Into the Great Lakes eventually at the bottom. The Great Lakes of Africa. Um, And there are wonderful, wonderful animals living in those lakes. And especially the lake that I focus on is Lake Tanganyika, Mm -hmm. second deepest lake in the world, second oldest lake in the world. And very, very diverse fauna. Um, Probably at the moment, I believe there's something like 1,400 species described from that That lake lake alone. alone. And most of those are unique to that habitat. Oh, wow. And that's that's of the described things. There are many that are undescribed. Um, And the question is, how can one justify going out to continue to sample in those areas? It's because we actually have a very poor knowledge of what's in there. Mm -hmm. And as a result of our poor knowledge the destruction runs rampant because we think that there's nothing to be concerned about. It's, I think it's the lakes are now protected, I think, or about to be. No. Made that out. Um, it has, it has uh, 20% of the world's fresh water in it. It's huge. Wow. If you were to stand at the northern end of Lake Tanganyika, 
Um, the distance to the southern end is the same as from London to Paris. So it's not small. Yeah, and lake. there are four countries around it. <laughs> um, and uh, only one large-ish city, um, and that's the capital of Burundi, um, and then a number of smaller or medium-sized towns. But most of those are really very so Very have you small. spent a lot of time out there yourself? Yes. And do you yes. do you put pots down to collect samples? Do you dive? Like Diving. That? It's all it's scuba work. Okay. Um, and so basically, and to to see the animals in their habitats, so putting on a scuba tank and getting down there and seeing this this world that has never been seen by anybody sure. before. Um, and it's very beautiful diving habitat. It's uh-huh. uh, it's very clear water, um, and there are wonderful, beautiful fish, and they're very, very interesting. They're the smartest fish in the fish world, (laughs) and uh, they do a lot of courtship dances, and they do all kinds of really fantastic things, Um, and lots of species of them, probably as a result of all that groovy behavior. But also, there are lots of species of other things, and they've been very understudied, and uh, the snails are among them. There's a big, big endemic radiation of of snails that means unique bunch of snails there so i I, snails are something in a world where people kind of don't necessarily see the point of them people might think they destroy their plants in the garden um people are coming around to liking bees now they're stingy but they provide all life where do snails fit into this world of other than destroying nasturtiums yes well they don't um i mean i think one of the the things that those of us who specialize in mollusks is that most of the molluscan world is quite independent of ours. Okay. And snails that live underwater in freshwater, uh, very few of them interact with us in any way. Sure. Um, we don't eat them, and uh, they don't care about us, but they do have a rather interesting life ongoing down there under the water. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's this thing, I think becoming a scientist, there's this feeling that um, you're privileged to be able to look into this magical world that has no space for you sure. and that's actually it's it's a wonderful thing it sounds a little bit the inverse but it actually is it's a it's a wonderful wonderful thing that said um perhaps some of the people listening are thinking yeah but what aren't there some snails in africa that carry diseases uh-huh. and there are it's a specific group of snails that carries one of the worst uh diseases that does infect humans, schistosomiasis uh-huh. or Belhartsia. It's got two names, and it has a uh, that's a, a, a parasite in humans, and it has a stage in its life cycle that goes through through some freshwater snails, um, and it is a, a, a terrible disease. What does it do? It can infect various organs of the body and basically keep them keep them from functioning very well it can it can kill you um, especially if you are young so kids are quite susceptible can go into the but it's litter. the parasite on the snail rather than the snail itself indeed it's okay. the, it's a parasite it's a it's a small uh, well, we can't hold worm. that against the snails can we exactly because the, the the snails are suffering as much yeah um, and okay, we're all going down together, we're comrades all, in arms. Yes. Um, however, the snails that I work on are not carriers of this. So it's a, these, the parasites are very specific. They'll live in only particular species. And that whole relationship is really quite complicated and interesting. And there are people doing uh, medical malacology. That's 
medical snail sciences, sure. basically, um, figuring out how the parasites go between the snails and the people, what that whole life cycle might be, and how we can interrupt it with you know, keeping people healthier. Fantastic. Yeah. So alongside the malacology yep. for the snail specialisms, look at me, I'm a professional now, um, you spent six years as the secretary of the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature. Yes. Nomenclature. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a, a actually exec sec, which is um, which means that I don't have to do the hard work. Um, my job was actually to bring together the professionals mm-hmm. who were working on nomenclature, explain to other other working professionals in science why that kind of work is important, and um, to outreach in a, in a number of different ways. Also to ensure that our our um, Judging, judging process of the commission and the journal that was published, make sure that basically the whole thing functioned fairly sure. well. In a world where digital photography, other forms of records exist in a way that there weren't in the 1700s when Linnaeus started naming things in this way, why is it necessary that we keep doing it? I mean, everything needs a name. I everything guess. needs a name. You can't really communicate about anything unless you've got a word for it it's very hard to communicate about something that's abstract difficult and hard to grasp like mollusks or Mm -hmm. or the other 1.8 million currently described living species um and the new ones we're discovering and the new ones that are coming and the ones that are dying out and ones that are dying out um fossil fossil things there's an awful lot of stuff out there we think that ultimately um there have been there's been a lot of work on figuring out how much of the living world there might be uh that we can describe in taxa the, sure. the, the estimate is now that it's probably something like maybe 10 million if we sat down and did the job right of describing everything everything living today eight to ten million maybe something like that i think one of the things so, that i found interesting in, in the research was i was doing is that quite often a name has to be changed um, i was talking to a manta ray specialist and we've now got to rebrand all manta rays as uh, modular rays uh-huh. uh, for example and other things like that, that i came across a clam <laughs> i yes. came across a clam which originally was called abracadabra oh yeah oh yeah oh um, no it hasn't changed has I, it i heard it was now called theora mesopotamica oh that's horrible in 1995 that's horrible okay i was there going mollusk specialists are wonderful yeah. because they're giving a clam the name of abracadabra yeah and yeah. Then, then discovered a moth called leonardo da vinci right uh a braconid a wasp called here's looking at you brilliant um there's a lungless salamander uh-huh. called oedipus complex Yes. But the best thing I discovered was that there's a whole, I think it's a whole class of snails called turbo. Oh, yes, indeed. Which I thought Um, was great because it was like they're slow, so we'll call them turbo. And then I discovered. They're so slow. But it comes from the Latin name for uh, 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 the design of it, the shell. It's the shell. Yes. Turbo is why we call a turbine it because of the, the shape of it. And the turbo thing actually refers to the shell. And the slowness has absolutely nothing to do with it. So it's a reverse naming of something. Right. But again, you come back to the shell, which is lovely. Yes, indeed. So yeah. is, there a, is there a particular shelled mollusk that is your favourite? Like in terms of shells, what should we look at in particular? Um, well, I, I'm very partial to um, the ones that I study, that I spend uh-huh. a lot of time looking at at all different scales. Um, but I actually I made sure that we had a few... Uh, shells here. These are not the ones that I work on. Um, 
because they're too small for me to deal with at the moment. But uh, this is called Tona, and um, I brought it along to sort of, to just show how... It's about the size of a softball, which yep. is sort of a light grey colour, lots of ridges on it, but it comes to a, a curly, snail-like pinnacle. And it looks end. like a giant biscuit kind of coloured, <laughs> yeah. And, and it has this beautiful spiral, spiral growth form. It's stunning. Um, yeah, and so I, I would say, I mean, the thing that, that I really like about uh, snails in general is, is the fact that you've got um, a spiral form... And that's the result of what's called accretionary growth. It grows only on the lip, on the edge, and it curls around. And so what you've got is a, is a growing form that records um, in the final shell. You've got the early shell at the top of what it looked like when it was a little tiny baby, Okay. And then as it grows, it adds little bit by little bit as it grows around. So it's a bit like the rings of a tree in a way, Exactly like the rings of the tree. Or, the, or better, the strata of a geological research. So like, like um, an ice... You More know, you like the rings that. of a yeah. tree, actually, okay. yeah. Um, but, but yes, it's a record through time. And things that have happened to it on the shell usually leave some kind of a record as it goes. Okay. So you've got this whole record of the growth of the individual, its development through its little lifespan, and then you have those shells piling up as fossils, uh-huh. and you can actually look through deep time through through looking at the different shells, through thousands. So you not only so you can disregard certain personal developments of the individual shells, but you can find correlation like weather events or potentially those. You have the, you have the possibility of actually looking at numerous timescales by looking at the shell. Um, That's absolutely through, fascinating. It's fantastic. And, and that was the thing that, was, that I found just absolutely wonderful and why I wanted to work on, on snails um, and that they're beautiful to look at. Uh-huh. So that, that spiral form is, is really very... Um, I've, I've never... I mean, I've trodden on so many snails and felt a bit bad but never thought about what the shell really was and the fact that it is a record. I just presumed... Yeah, that it's a blob. Yeah, that, that it was a, the same sort of substance that just grew over time rather than it recorded anything. Yeah, it actually can can record events that have happened to the shell. So, for example, this... That's um, a conch. It's a big conch shell. Um, Strombus is its Latin name. And, uh, well, this is actually not exactly the example that I wanted to bring, but it mm-hmm. you, you can see these sort of uh, rough... Um, lines here at each point here there might have been some kind of environmental change that would cause the shell to grow in a slightly different way and if you were to spend the time probably years of sampling and looking at isotopes and things you could probably uncode that and figure out when there were times of of high productivity maybe correlating with rainfall or changes in temperature rainy season dry season something like that or an attack from a predator there may be a scar and that'll show that it's an, an interaction that it had with a predator, that it survived, and then it carried on so growing. You're, so, now, so I, now I'm suddenly understanding the introduction that I could have written at the beginning that I got you to explain, is that your fascination is that these are records of... This is natural history in its purest form. Yes. This is a record and documentation of time, of event, of individual events, as well as, 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 as in, across the entire globe. That's, yeah. That's you, awesome in the, t- in the traditional sense of the word. Yes, it's scale at many levels. So you can, you can look at the scale of the individual and the smallest events of its individual life do and unravel there, those and then 
extrapolate that out. Extrapolate that. Are there other species that do that? Do like pangolin scales record events like that? I mean, I don't um, know. I mean, there are. Do things... we record it in our hair? I guess we probably we, do. Kind of, kind of, yes, but and it doesn't really last. last. So anything with accretionary growth—that means growth that layers one thing on top of the other. Sure. Um, so the things that you that, that do that are corals, because mm-hmm. they corals basically deposit their little homes out of their squishy little bumps sure. underneath them, and they <laughs> pile up and build reefs. Uh-huh. So if you drilled into a coral reef, you would have that record the through record time. time. So um, sorry, good to go yeah. back. A fossilized shell. Yes. Is that like a fossilized bone? It's not actually the bone, or does the shell preserve over time? Depends on the conditions that it was buried in. But there can be actual shells preserved. There can be. Wow. Yes. Depends on the age as well. Okay. Um, the older stuff is almost all replaced by mi- by Mineral other minerals. Deposits. Okay. Uh, younger stuff on the order of thousands or tens of thousands of years may have original material in it. Could you look at... That's a biochemistry question of the interaction. I'll go and find a colleague somewhere else in the building. Um, Let me just add Mm, on to um, accretionary growth. I mentioned microfossils. There are several microfossils. There's some called forams, which grow in a spiral way, and they accrete their growth. So you could actually dissect their their history of the individual a little Mm -hmm. bit with that, but you can't go back very far because they're small and short-lived. So there, there are a few things with accretionary growth. Sure. Vertebrates like us and dinosaurs generally do not accrete. What we do with our bones, our skeletal structure, first our skeletons are on the inside and not mm-hmm. the outside, and as we grow, we resorb our bones and then redeposit them in a new way, sure. not in a layer. So the, so the record is often quite lost. So in other words, if I took you mm-hmm. um, and did extensive studies, I still would not be able to tell you anything about what you look like when you were very, very small. Because that was all been We're supposed to be fully recycled every seven years or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. So other, are there other malacologists? Indeed. There we go. <laughs> um, who are doing experiments on live mollusks to see how the shells represent those specific events? There should be a lot more. Uh-huh. Um, all of that stuff is is desperately un, understudied and unknown, but there are people working on that. There is there is a term for it, uh-huh. sclerochronology, which means sclero meaning skeletal, uh-huh. uh, and um, being chronology time. is time. So basically sclerochronologists will look... Look at how you figure out uh, time through through an accreted growth like that. Amazing. So, I yeah. In <laughs> I've told a few people I was coming to talk to you today, and they say, like, "Who are you talking to?" Well, she's a mollusk specialist, and I'm like, yeah. "Really? Is that going to be interesting?" Yeah. Um, I, I hope that if people have got to the 40th minute of this podcast, they're all sitting here like I am, going, "Okay, that's amazing." Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> stunned. Um, yeah, I'm trying to get my head around that. Um, okay, another thing that you are is you, you, you're the chairman of the Crystal Palace, Friends of the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs, which oh, is yeah. very close to my heart because I live down that way too. Right. Um, How mean, did that happen? Is it, that's what you want to know. How I, do they go from mollusks to concrete dinosaurs? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, they're a record in, of history and time and moving on and development. They're exactly. A, they're a frozen bit of, of what we were in the natural world. Yeah. So I should comment quickly on what they are in Crystal Palace Park, um, where uh, there's, a, there's a construction of 30 sculptures of extinct animals, mm-hmm. and um, they were built into a, a landscape that was that was constructed to show the show the idea of geologic time to the general public and it was the first time there was a large scale outreach on this is the 1850s science. late 1850s right it's 1854 they were revealed to the public oh, okay. and it was a landscape um, built that went from what was then considered deepest time which is now about 360 million years, we now know as 360 million years ago, when the first vertebrates came out onto land, and there are sculptures of what they thought the, they looked the like. scientists in 1854 thought they looked like, um, and they're wonderful, they look like giant toads mm-hmm. and turtles. I spoke to um, a fossil collector called Steve Etches about them a few weeks back, and oh, yeah. I think everyone's, everyone sort of loves them, but thinks they're... I mean, they're, they're, they're art and a point in time rather than yes. science. Yes. Yes. But at the time... They at was, the time they were cutting they edge... They were 100% science. They were point yeah. and proof of everything. As much as you could do. Now, mm. the, the, the thing about these wonderful sculptures is that they were built largely by an, an artist, a natural history artist um, and sculptor. His name is Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, mm-hmm. And he'd worked with lots of uh, very um, distinguished scientists, including Charles Darwin. He was one of the illustrators of Darwin's material brought back on the Beagle. Um, and Waterhouse Hawkins was known as, known as being someone who could really bring um, n- not very good specimen material, bring it to life and make it look fantastic sure. and make it look like something really alive. And he did that um, on paper. And then he was given this task to do it in, in sculptural life. form. And he hadn't really worked in sculptural form that much really, before. you can't tell. <laughs> yeah. um, well, actually, I would, I, I, the sculptures actually are, I would say, very convincing as animals. He made them look living. Well, he based a lot and, of them on pre-existing creatures, I think. Yes. There's a certain, the iguanodon, for example, has a lot in common with an iguana. Even if the one of them does. <laughs> and the other one looks like an elephant <laughs> or a rhinoceros. Yeah. Um, so that's the argument by analogy, and he had to um, sort of balance out how do you how do you reconstruct something when you've got four four bones to go on, and a bunch of scientists who with who give you loads of data but no real concept. I mean, data data is has a conceptual point in the scientist's head, but how do you convey that to other people who sure. don't want to read? tables well, of measurements. I, I think, I think what is interesting about the dinosaurs is at a point in time where big ideas were flying around, like yeah. Darwin's Origin of the Species, what these sculptures did is they took big ideas and took them to the layman and said, this is the world you've actually got to deal with. And for some, there was a huge uproar about them, therefore denying the existence of God, because yeah. it, it said that he didn't make the world in six days. He said yeah. 350 million years. Yeah. And they changed everything. In a the, in the similar way, not to take us full circle again, but Linnaeus was the first person who put man in his description of of the, oh, right. the environmental world. So he was saying that we are animals, even though before then people thought they were gods. So these are huge ideas yep. that are defining ourselves and destroying our theological selves. Yes. Um, 
Although the theological tension was probably a little bit less than we imagine it to be. How now. so? They just weren't worried? They thought they were just a bunch of crackpots? Or? Uh, it, I don't think it was seen as, as much of a conflict as, um, let's say, religious fundamentalists today see, it, don't, see a greater conflict. People are louder when they know they're That's, wrong, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to get back to the dinosaurs mm. in Crystal Palace, I think the thing that really makes them special, it, it was effectively the, the first large-scale public outreach on science at all, um, and it, the idea of reaching to a, to the, a very common public and not requiring people to digest difficult bits of knowledge. They could just wander through this landscape, and if all they took from it is that it looked cool mm-hmm. and that there were big, scary beasts, that was enough. Sure. Um, but the landscape is built in such a way that there are many, many levels of information there to the point of showing... um, There's the strata of the rock work on one side, you've got more recent ones and more recent animals extinct and which look just like existing extant uh, stags and deer, but they're actually giant Irish elk that are gone. Because we have... uh, So the Irish elk are really quite accurate. There are a little bit of differences now in our interpretation. Well, the original models, I understood, had actually had real antlers on them. Yep. But they were so heavy that they broke the necks of the... Of the, of the sculptures. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to keep those sculptures together because the, the sculptures themselves are made out of all kinds of mixed materials, sure. all kinds of combinations of early concrete. Uh, and it may be that they were one of the first non... We're not really sure about this at the moment, but the first non-architectural use of Portland cement... But That's Benjamin cool Waterhouse—it's a cool, a cool thing. We don't know if it's a fact yet. We're still working on it. We need to work with. That is such concrete. a scientist rebuttal yeah. to my my assertion. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, concrete historians need to get involved in that. We're, but we're, but we're, Waterhouse Hawkins was basically—I mean, he was—he uh, was inventing stuff as he went along and using all kinds of mixed materials in making these sculptures, um, and he did a pretty good job. But they tend to be kind of a big old gamish. They're made of straight-out mortar concrete, uh, bricks, tiles, hoop iron, uh, cast iron, lead, bits and bobs. Well, there's the great heritage of of concrete as well, is the Roman concrete is supposedly the strongest material that we've... the strongest version of concrete that we've ever been able to make, but we don't quite know how they made it. Yeah. We think they used animal fat and blood and things to make it as rigid as they did. Yeah. And we're still trying to make concrete that's as strong. Who knows? And we've got the same problem with these, with these if, wonderful if sculptures. If only Roman concrete it's... could accrete a shell-like substance to be able yeah. us to look back in time <laughs> and see what was going on. Um, yeah. One of the things you mentioned there was that this was the first public access to this kind of huge time, and whether they took away just the awe of these mighty creatures or whether they look deeper into the different scientific knowledge. Yep. It's kind of fitting that we're talking now during the Easter holidays and that the museum upstairs is rammed full of children. Yes. And some of them might just take a dinosaur away with them. Right. Some of them might see something bigger, more intriguing. And that's kind of what's so wonderful about this institution being here. Yeah. And knowing that at the hub of it, you've got complex mollusk, mollusk research and upstairs right. there's an yeah. animatronic velociraptor. Yeah, uh, dinosaurs are a gateway um, to opening the door to science and, and discovering the natural world. And I would say most kids who are exposed to dinosaurs go crazy about them for a little while. Well, I did. And some of us... Fraction keep, off into clams. <laughs> yeah, well, or we keep crazy about, about that 
for the rest of our lives. It's you know, there's something that just connects. So they they are pretty wonderful in a in a whole bunch of ways, and they also tell the story of the human side of of doing research. Mm-hmm. And there's a an extraordinary story of the conflicts between the scientists and that of the time, sure. and whose ideas won, um, how the information was actually, you know, put out there, whose sure. story actually was the one that that was preeminent who got the credit um, and there's a lot of drama in that as well um, as a result we've, we're working with a street theater company that uh-huh. does a, um, a a fantastic half an hour compressed story of the, of history, the history of paleontology of in Britain at the, the time of in, uh, oh, okay. at the time and, and the, the, just all these, these human dramas and it brings in Mary Anning and, um, she's got her own film coming out soon too Two, two films. Yeah, I saw that the friends were making one themselves, and then there's the. Uh, well, there are two feature-length films wow, with okay. stars in them. One of them is has been worked on by someone who's in Lyme Regis and has been working on it well, for, for many for years. For every and Finding Nemo, there's a shark well. tales. Every great idea exactly. seems to happen. Parallel evolutionary uh, events. I'm I'm going to have to sort of start to wrap this up. I could talk to you for hours. I really could. Yeah. Um, but there are three questions that we ask everyone who comes onto the podcast. Uh huh. Uh, the first one is, if you could go for a walk or a journey anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? Well, that, uh, that allows me to mention another little thing. I would go back, not walking, but swimming, back underwater in Lake Tanganyika where I've spent a lot of time in the past. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring it up in that context is I can't do it right now. Um, I have... Uh, suffered a spinal cord injury and I'm no longer really very mobile so I'm not at the moment able to do that I might be able to do it again in the future because if if your mobility disabled diving is still one of those things you can do um, but it takes an awful lot of work and it may not be worth the risk to get somebody like me back out into that kind of a habitat that's really quite dangerous Um, but I uh, I, I feel that I'd like to go not only for my own just sense of the place, but um, all the, the knowledge that I've accumulated over the years, over thousands and thousands of dives in the lake, actually I should say about a thousand, of in Lake Tanganyika. I feel like I need to build on that. Sure. And I feel like I'm a bit derelict in not doing so at the moment. So that's where I would go. I would go back to Lake Tanganyika, probably on the Congo side, Okay. Um, which is not a very easy place to be. Has the injury changed your perception of the natural world, or at least how humans responded to it? In the very largest sense, no, but one of the things that I've found is that it, when it's hard to get out, I'm uh, most of the time in the wheelchair. I'm a semi-walker, I can, uh, but when I'm trying to get anywhere at any speed, I go in a wheelchair. Um, and so you just can't get close enough to things. And the landscapes that I interact with are largely human-structured now sure. um, for the last few years since I've been dealing with that. And that has made it a little bit harder to have the natural world in my everyday vision. Uh-huh. I'm sort of understanding a little bit more how people who live a very urbanized life are disconnected from, from the living world. Um, I guess... It's it's not something I really wanted to understand. I oh. wanna I wanna be living more in the natural world, but at the moment it's, I haven't been able to do that. The second question we ask everyone is: Should we colonize the moon? 
I guess in the kind of because it's there kind of way, maybe. Mm-hmm. But to me, I, I, I think it would take an awful lot of effort for something of pretty limited gain for human beings. And I think that there's just so much more to be gained by um, living in a sustainable way within the world that actually wants us there. The moon doesn't want us. Sure. The moon is is empty of resources for sustaining the human body. Oh, Um, for for the human body. For the human body. Maybe there's enough for a human aesthetic uh, to be be fed, you know, um, to be stimulated. But even that, I find it um, potentially a bit barren. And there's so much more richness in the living world. Especially um, underwater. Especially underwater. It's an interesting answer to get from you, considering earlier on in the podcast you said uh, when is enough is enough. You said, well, as long as the human uh, uh, search for knowledge is quenched, I guess that's when we stop. I, I mean, I won't say what I think about the moon, but it is, who knows what's there? Yeah. Who knows? Okay, third question. If you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? Oh, right. There are many. Mm-hmm. I think... Uh, again, I'm going to slightly dodge the question, if you don't mind. But <laughs> I think do. I think the thing that I'm getting I'm getting worried about the things that are going extinct, and I think bringing something back, um, especially these there are conversations about about bringing back things like mammoths, etc. Sure. I think there's a level. Are of, they conversations happening in this building right now? Yes, people here are not talking about doing it uh, per se. We have uh, one of the world's um, probosidian experts. That's elephant animals. Um, that's mm-hmm. Adrian. Professor Adrian Lister is a fossil expert here. Sure. Um, he also happens to be on the board of the Friends of Crystal Palace dinosaurs. dinosaurs everyone, um, it's the thing that binds one, one concrete dinosaur to rule us all. But I think I, I, I think many of us who who work on extinct things and who are fascinated and spend our days looking at at extinct things also feel that what the responsible thing is to keep the world that is here today alive and bringing extinct things back is a huge distraction and a dereliction of responsibility to the things that we are driving extinct now so i have become increasingly worried about extinctions of megafauna i would i'll i'll admit that as an invertebrate zoologist my concern for what we call disco species or charismatic megafauna the Mm -hmm. big the big snazzy stuff that a lot of publicity spins on disco species. I just, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, I, I, for much of my professional life, I didn't worry that much about it. Um, you know, it, it, the pandas and uh, mm-hmm. and whales and all that stuff. People were worried about that, and they could keep worrying about it. Sure. Um, and my job as a professional was to to work on the nitty gritty of science of things that other people weren't looking at, mm-hmm. but that could answer other kinds of questions I have now become I think uh, a little bit um, less sanguine about that and I think we have I I kind of panic about the situation for elephants and whales and pandas not not as much for pandas but I just got into disco music all of a sudden yeah yeah Yeah, so um, the the situation is quite dire for a lot of sure. things that are on the on the brink of extinction, and that's where our responsibility lies. Right so, uh, and I think the discussion of bringing back things that are extinct now to a world where they have no ecological context, I have not read a, 
of justification that convinces me that it's a good thing to do. Okay, to, to end it on one a slightly posit- more positive note, is there an extinct invertebrate, whether they be mollusk or other, that you would like to bring back? I'm imagining like a Dr. Doolittle science, uh, pink sea snail that can sort of go through the ocean with human beings living in the shell of it. Yeah. What is the most interesting mollusk that has ever slithered or pulled itself along the, the earth? Well, the thing is that mollusks, mollusks keep rather quiet company, so you have to really start looking into them um, to find out what, it, what their magic is. Sure. And often, often it's, it's in the way that they live their lives, biochemistry, or just they have, they have quiet secrets. Of fossil things, um, I'm not sure I can really put my finger on okay. a particular one. I mean, the, the ammonites were quite extraordinary, and the, the shapes of their shells is amazing. And the fact that we don't quite understand how they navigated in open water, how they regulated their buoyancy and things like that, I would love to see that in action. Sure. Um, and see how it compares to Nautilus today, um, whether it was different. Uh, but there are, so, there are so many hundreds of thousands of invertebrate species have secrets like that that I, I don't even really quite know where to start. Sure. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. If people want to know more about the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, there's a website. Yes. Uh, we'll put a link up to that on our website. Um, if people want to know more about mollusks, is there anywhere they can go? There, there are. We can put up web, uh, some links for, for that kind of thing. Also for the ICZN, the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature, <laughs> um, and find out about why names of, of animals in this case, but names of organisms in general, why they're important. Um, I, I, I'm gonna, this is going to be one of those podcasts that keeps going, and we're going to end, and we're going to end. But I discovered that there was a rule that was in in how naming things that no zoologist should propose a name that to his knowledge gives offence on any grounds. That's right. I love the fact that there are rules on it. Yeah. Like it's... Uh, that one's actually a recommendation. Um, <laughs> there's a, there is a book of rules, the code, and it's you know a couple hundred pages long, full, full of some rules and some recommendations. Thou shalt not use Latin yeah. swear words. But an interesting, an interesting twist on that is... Um, some groups of taxonomists have taken it upon themselves to decide that political names are not a good idea mm-hmm. because things go wrong. Oh, there's loads of those. Trumps now. There are loads of Trumps. In the U.S., taxonomists will name things after all kinds of people. They don't balk at naming things after politicians that they like or politicians that they don't like. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of things named after Obama, a number of things named after Trump, in both cases, they are um, either honorifics, as in honoring somebody, mm-hmm. or um, criticisms, as in slightly mocking the, per- the person by naming something kind of an organism that is not considered very sure. nice <laughs> after them. Um, but in contrast, I've heard that Russian scientists have basically a pact among themselves not to name things after political leaders because... That could backfire With, on it them. Can go, it can go awfully wrong, the history of, of Russian politics with uh, Stalin and Lenin, and etc. Um, so that basically those names are not... Are not uh, That's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, it's probably a good idea, yes. I think. 
Wonderful. Well, we'll leave it there. Anything anybody wants to know, come to Natural History Museum, look at our website for further links, and that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Huge thanks again to Eleanor for taking time out to talk to me and for instilling in me a newfound respect for mollusks. No word of a lie, this actually happened. I stood on a mountainside yesterday, gawking at a slug for five minutes. I am a changed man. As always, further reading about Eleanor, malacology and about me can be found on social media and at treesacrowd.fm. And as of next week, we'll be back to our regular fortnightly release and I'll be talking to a lemur. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.